Welcome to This Moment in Democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on February 19th, 2024. As we celebrate Black History Month today, we are joined by Khalil Gibran Mohammed, co-chair of the New Jersey Reparations Council. Mohammed is the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School, and he directs the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project, and is the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City, division of the New York Public Library, and the world's leading library and archive of global Black history. His writing and scholarship have been featured in national print and broadcast media outlets, such as The New Yorker, Washington Post, The Nation, National Public Radio, and uh, PBS NewsHour, Moyers & Company, MSNBC, and The New York Times. Khalil, welcome. Hey, thank you. It's great to be on, on this show. It is hard to go through that intro uh, of your background without stumbling, so forgive me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where you find the time and energy. Maybe why don't you share a little bit uh, uh, with our audience a little bit about your background and how... Um, you came to become a professor at Harvard and how your interest in race led you to the uh, New Jersey Reparations Council. Sure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show, as I said, and to be in conversation with you, fan of your work. I, uh, I'm a Rutgers alum, just, just for the record, so very proud to be a part of this community and uh, took a really seminal class many years ago at the Eagleton Institute. Um, on race and politics. Um, so uh, this is a bit of a, a homecoming of sorts in terms of coming full circle to serve in this capacity for the state of New Jersey vis-a-vis uh, -vis the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. I, um, I am a person who has long been interested in the past as a way to understand and make sense of, of the present. And my particular journey towards understanding structural racism and systemic inequality came uh, when I was in college at the moment when the Rodney King uh, verdict uh, led many young college students to uh, question uh, justice for their generation. Um, and that was, of course, in 1992. And I've been <laughs> trying to figure out and make sense of this country ever since. So as I said, went to graduate school uh, at the Rutgers finished in the early 2000s and wrote a lot about the history of criminal justice um, in this country and served in interesting roles, both as a fellow at the Vera Institute of Justice, which is a national leading reform organization and nonprofit, and then having run the Schomburg Center in Harlem, one of the oldest cultural institutions in this country, with its own deep commitments to um, multiracial democracy. Oh, the Schomburg is is really a treasure, and uh, I've spent uh, many a day, uh, an afternoon in the Schomburg um, doing research. It's just a terrific center, and I think that's when I first began to hear about you. Um, and just full disclosure for our audience, I am co-chair of the Democracy Committee on the uh, NJ Reparations Council, so I want uh, everyone to, to be aware of that as well. Um, how have you managed... Um, maybe preemptive criticisms of what's going on with respect to the council's work uh, in New Jersey, which is uh, current and ongoing. Um, what challenges have you faced, if any, uh, in discussing and or attempting to implement reparations policy in New Jersey? I think a little bit of backstory would help because uh, it's a little early for the council to be involved in pushing forward recommendations. But it's not too early for understanding that the 
uh, New Jersey Institute for Social Justice has been leading an education and advocacy campaign uh, to have the state legislature take up a reparations study bill as the prerequisite for a set of reparations policies, including cash payments, uh, as well as policy fixes in a state with the most extreme forms of wealth inequality, racial wealth inequality uh, in the country. So the uh, task force role, as it is defined, is to do the work that the New Jersey state legislature has refused to do in an effort to both educate the public uh, as well as to educate our various elected officials on the indisputable evidence uh, that uh, what remains an ongoing problem of structural inequality and systemic racism in the state of New Jersey uh, must uh, be addressed uh, through a reparations uh, set of policies. Some of the resistance to this work has uh, mostly been in terms of the, the task force or the council's work has been a question of eligibility. And that is the question of uh, who are we talking about in terms of the descendant community today? And, uh, and that's an ongoing national discussion, to be frank, with regard to uh, people who often define themselves as foundational black Americans, uh, who can trace their lineage directly to, uh, to the period of slavery in the United States from the early 17th century through to the Civil War as opposed to a more expansive definition of eligibility, which would also include people uh, of the African diaspora, whether by way of the Caribbean or African immigrants, many of whom have come more recently since 1965. I'd say that's the most visible source of uh, pushback at this time, but I will would say that that's only a timing issue. I imagine as this council moves forward, um, I anticipate more uh, concerted political backlash from other pockets of the state of New Jersey, uh, as well as on the legislative, uh, in the state legislature itself. You know, Khalil, it really is a, a fascinating moment, given that California has already put out a report on reparations um, uh, and, and really a kind of history of racial discrimination against African-Americans um, with some recommendations. And uh, New York is... Uh, as I've read recently, uh, considering doing likewise. Um, what other models? Are there good models, whether in this country or elsewhere, uh, that you have looked for or towards uh, to address this question of uh, redressing historic wrongs? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think that in this country, it's fair to say uh, no one has quite taken the next step. I think the California example is an excellent example from the study perspective. What does it mean for the largest state in the union to have taken on this work, produced, if I have this correct, something like a 1,700-page report that makes recommendations uh, from cash, uh, cash payments to uh, changes in state curricula to address these histories to a, a number of policy interventions. And so all of us will be watching very closely to see how this plays out in the near to medium term future for that state. New York has just gotten started, but there are some smaller examples at, at the uh, municipal level. Evanston, Illinois being the most prominent, uh, looked at the history specifically of housing exclusion and redlining in that small Chicago suburb, home to Northwestern University, and decided that people whose lineage could be traced 
during the period of formal housing uh, exclusion and redlining would be uh, eligible for $25,000 cash stipends to support home improvement uh, projects or the purchase of homes uh, in the city. Uh, it's small relative to the compounding interest that would come from property that uh, people today uh, for whom their uh, parents or grandparents or other ancestors would have uh, cashed in on over all these uh, many decades since the early 20th century. Uh, but it is a municipal response. And I think it's important to recognize that there are three levels of government here that are implicated uh, in this conversation about reparations, uh, local, state, and federal. And a lot of attention right now is, is on the state level activity, which is why New Jersey is having this conversation through this reparations council. Understood. And, and allow me to play maybe the older perhaps somewhat um, stereotypical uh, white ethnic critic of this. Uh, I happen to have ancestors on uh, on my mother's side from, from Sicily, and I can imagine, and I've heard, in fact, um, not necessarily from my family, but others, well, my folks, my people came from Italy. My people came from Ireland. My people came from, you get the idea, and they came with nothing and worked hard and no one gave them anything. And um, therefore, why should African-Americans who have uh, every right and, and opportunity to advance in this society uh, be singled out for reparations when so many other groups have been historically discriminated against? How do you address this? And uh, uh, I won't invite you uh, to Thanksgiving in the future to <laughs> maybe hear some of these kinds of conversations, <laughs> but... Um, how do you how do you address uh, that particular critique, and then maybe we can move on to some more uh, to some other issues? Sure, sure. It's a great, it's a great question. Uh, so the first answer is that um, since African Americans were here um, before the country became a nation, two hundred and forty years before, um, and Italians in mass came in the late nineteenth century, um, the actual wealth stolen from the black community is a much older story. And the generational wealth that was not passed on uh, to the black community precedes the Italian-Americans' ability uh, to participate fully in this society uh, by 200 plus years. Uh, so um, it's, a, it's a false comparison to equate Italian immigrants arriving particularly in the mid to late 19th century or even early 20th century as compared to African-Americans uh, who were here before. The country was in fact a more desirable place for those Italian immigrants in the late 19th and 20th century precisely because of the wealth accrued in this country on the backs of black people and the land of the indigenous. I'd also note that um, the Italian American community benefited from their whiteness in ways that black people could never benefit and as such something as simple as the New Deal housing policies that gave birth to the most durable wealth accumulating asset for most white Americans, including Italian immigrants, was withheld from black people. So as much as a Sicilian would have been subjected to all sorts of racist and at times xenophobic treatment in the early 20th century, by the 1930s, those same Italian Americans were able to buy homes in the suburbs of New Jersey in ways that black people couldn't. And that doesn't wipe away that there wasn't continued ways in which Italian Americans were subjected to bigotry, but it does suggest that there are very specific ways that their whiteness gave them access to material resources that the government was involved in that was not was not at all available uh, to black people. 
Well, that's a very compelling, certainly to me, response. And uh, we'll see how uh, the committee's work plays out. <laughs> and I'm I'm hopeful uh, as someone engaged um, uh, that we'll have open ears and, and hearts and minds uh, towards um, reparative and restorative justice. I know my alma mater, Georgetown, has done um, some some good work with respect to reparations for um, historically enslaved folks on its campus. And I know Rutgers, as, as you well know, like many other college campuses and universities across this country, has a long history uh, connected to slavery and has uh, yeah. attempted to, in some small ways, begin to consider how to uh, manage that history in ways that involves restorative justice. I don't know if, uh, if you've paid much attention to some of the work at Rutgers or, or elsewhere with respect to universities. I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a really important um, model to some degree at the institutional level, meaning, you know, as we think about the role of civil society itself in this story, this isn't just about government actors, uh, but we also have the evidence that our leading universities and our oldest universities, uh, Harvard, for example, fitting both categories, uh, became a wealthy institution in the early 19th century as as it admits in its own um, essentially legacy report of slavery that without the proceeds of the donations or should say the proceeds of slavery given by donors who uh, were either slave traders or owned plantations or had their businesses in direct relationship to uh, slavery, Harvard would not have amassed the wealth that it did at the time and ultimately become a national university, putting it well ahead of its nearest competitor, say Yale University, um, at a very early point in its history. So I think that whether it's Harvard or Georgetown or Rutgers, um, all of these institutions are helping to create much more acceptance on mainstream, on Main Street, that it is impossible to understand the institutional landscape of the United States uh, without understanding the relationship uh, to slavery. And I have one friendly uh, coda to the Italian immigrant conversation that maybe one day I do get to have. Uh, with one of your relatives at Thanksgiving. And and that is that um, some of your listeners may know I live in New Jersey. I commute to work in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, my wife is a real local history buff. And uh, she recently shared a story with me about East Orange and the vibrancy of the Italian-American community there. Uh, but one of the really fascinating things about the story of Italian-Americans is also the story of civil service in ways that Uh, the kind of foothold that they were able to get on uh, the middle class wasn't just the houses and the access to the suburbs, but it was also the jobs. They could be firemen, they could be police officers, they could be teachers, they could be librarians. They were able to amass the kind of um, economic mobility that black people were still discriminated against precisely because their whiteness entitled them to these civil service jobs. And it's really only into the 1980s and 90s and 2000s that some of these jobs in public service finally uh, went to black people um, in communities that have long been black since the 1960s in the wake of the uprising in Newark. That's right. That's a fascinating uh, uh, comparison to, to make. I think Nona, my mom, would love you, by the way. I think you're, you're a slender brother. <laughs> You're a little slender. I think she'd love to feed you for Thanksgiving. So if you ever find yourself, um, you know, on the outs uh, with the yeah. Muhammad clan, we, we'll, we'll take you in, brother. We will take you in and Nona will feed All you. Right. All right. Uh, look, All right. 
shifting gears a little, let's talk about some of the stuff that's going on. Um, you've been at the center of controversy at Harvard uh, and questions related to DEI. And uh, there have been congressional hearings, obviously, uh, that became um, quite uh, quite the cause celeb uh, regarding uh, Representative Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina who singled out a graduate level course you teach as quote unquote fueling rabid anti-Semitism. Uh, what's your response uh, to that kind of accusation? And what do you see as uh, the broader impact on academic freedom, uh, particularly regarding race and American history at this moment, um, given not only what you're uh, experiencing vis-a-vis uh, -vis your course, but what you see happening around the country with issues of teaching race, African-American history and African history, et cetera. Give us a big picture from your perspective. So I would say in picking up where we just left off in terms of your Italian-American immigrants and the various institutions like Rutgers or Harvard, um, part of what I do for a living uh, is to tell the truth about our nation, uh, not as a way to make people feel bad, as, as a way to protect the gains that we can agree uh, we've made and to ensure that um, if we are to believe in democracy and to uphold um, kind of the best ideals of democracy that, as Dr. King famously said, were put on paper, um, then history is uh, an essential uh, way to measure our progress um, and to ensure that we are stewards of those gains. So the attacks on truth are an attack on democracy. The criminalization of learning about race and racism uh, is fundamentally a political assault on our basic ability to understand who we are, the world we live in, and what we are responsible for in terms of, as, as you political scientists and political theorists would say, our social contract. So there, there is no greater threat at this point um, to the future of this country than the lies being told uh, in our nation's classrooms, whether they are in a public school uh, here uh, uh, in, well, I guess New Jersey is slightly different on this point in terms of public schools, but really absolved of this. But to the extent that this is a problem that stretches all the way from, say, a third grade classroom in Florida uh, to my graduate course in Cambridge, um, the full arc of this problem is the, in my opinion, the absolute greatest threat we face at this time, because it gives license to the uh, authoritarian uh, tendencies uh, of people like Donald Trump and people I would call fascists in the Republican Party, uh, who are only trying to preserve power um, and and forms of domination uh, over the citizenry that they object to. This is not about academic freedom at all. This is precisely about shutting down academic debate, about shutting down the ability uh, to learn and to teach, to read. I mean, the book bans alone ought to give extreme pause uh, to people watching this unfold or listening to this conversation, uh, because the first thing uh, that fascists do is to destroy uh, your ability to encounter ideas. Uh, and the next thing they do is destroy your ability uh, to speak on your condition. Uh, once they control your mind, then they control your body. Wow, it's well said. I'm, I'm rereading uh, Volker Ulrich's uh, volume one on on uh, on Adolf Hitler, the biography that um, is probably one of the most compelling reads I've I've experienced in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, mm. And to your point, um, an enormously 
um, frankly, successful part of of the process and the rise of Nazism was the the control of history, as we know, and and ultimately the banning of books. And um, anyone who uh, is opposed to fascism, certainly uh, no secret here. Uh, this this show is called "This Moment in Democracy" for a reason. Uh, has to give mm-hmm. pause to to those who love representative government and 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 the liberties that come with it. Uh, it's well said. Um, look, you 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 are deeply engaged uh, and have been um, for some time in the public uh, and and with regard to these issues. I wish I could say all of my uh, friends and brothers and sisters who are African-American have been likewise. And I think there's even more broadly speaking across the country, a kind of disengagement, irrespective of race, uh, with regard to the political system or an engagement with it that is frankly very hostile. Um, how do you and how have you kept hope and faith uh, that somehow the work you're doing and others are doing uh, will make a difference when so many have frankly opted out? Uh, I'm sure you know people like that as well. We've just um, grown sick and tired of, of engaging uh, because they've they've become hopeless, frankly. This is a really important question, Saladin, because like you, I, I am observing the same problem. I have uh, experienced personally extreme bouts of, of disappointment and frustration with the lack of engagement around this issue. And I've been asking this question of people whose formal day jobs are uh, to be uh, engaged as advocates of either civil rights or as advocates of democracy. And what I've been told by them, I'd say going on two years now, is that people are tired, that the Trump years wore people out. Uh, there was a raging dumpster fire in the newspaper every day. And while the Biden administration has provided some measure of relief from Donald Trump as president, uh, the metastasization of Trumpism to state legislative bodies around the country um, makes it feel even more proximate to danger because now, as we all know, the federal government only does so much to uh, support people's lives, but state level activity has huge implications, including at the local level school boards where we've seen a lot of activity, say from Moms for Liberty. So I do think it's true that people are tired. I also think it's true people are afraid. And the one thing I'd say that's given me hope is that I recognize that in every social movement, there are moments for great participation, but the day-to-day work of building a, a movement of resistance or a pro-democracy movement is the work of a much smaller uh, group of people. And uh, I've signed up for that. Um, I think you have too. And my job is to recruit others to this work, which is not necessarily going to produce mass participation, not, not in terms of the day-to-day work, but uh, we have to do this work. There is no option <laughs> to sit back and watch this unfold on our watch. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, I assigned uh, um, the power elite by C. Wright Mills to my undergraduate associates class at the beginning of the year. And Mills talks about counter elite moments uh, and movements historically. There may be a little episodic, but there are moments when um, pro-democratic movements um, gain currency and momentum and make significant changes. We have seen that historically in this country. And, uh, you know, God knows we are, we are due for, for one right now. Um, I, I do marvel at your energy and your uh, commitment. Um, 
last question. What are you seeing from your students um, in this moment? Uh, how engaged and energized are they? Uh, are they feeling some of this uh, lost luster for engagement in, in politics or are they um, deeply uh, engaged in ways that, that are inspiring to you? So just to be clear, I don't teach uh, undergrads proper. I, I have a few who uh, petition to get in my graduate level course. Uh, and it, roughly speaking, I teach on the intersection of race, racism, uh, and, and American democracy. And, uh, and so my graduate students who are masters of public policy or public administration, um, they're a mixed bunch. I, I'd say that a lot of them understand the urgency of the moment, are looking for knowledge to be more effective in the various roles of public leadership and public service that they plan to engage in. A lot of them will work in various levels of government after they uh, finish their master's degree. But on the other side, I will say that I've had more graduate students in the past two years who have come to my office with a real crisis um, about the future uh, of this country and both their own role in it and feeling very much uncertain about how to spend their time most wisely in a moment where nothing seems to be an effective response uh, to these threats. And, uh, and I've given them as, as encouraging advice, I guess, sure. which is that you stay in the fight, you, you pick the battleground that is uh, most um, commensurate with your skills and talents, uh, and when that changes, you move on to the next one and take a, take lots of healthy breaks in between. That's that's really the best advice I can give them. And anyone who's promising uh, silver bullet solutions to their students or to their publics right now is lying to people. Um, we are we are in, in in a deep abyss of trouble uh, at this time, and we need a lot of creative, committed uh, people to fight our way out of this. Well, there it is. To be embattled is not to be defeated. And uh, as I share with my students, uh, the struggle itself is the victory. Uh, we cannot uh, imagine a world where in 1935, someone like W.E.B. Du Bois threw up his hands and said, well, that's it. I've, I've had it. <laughs> I've been at this too long. Uh, and uh, your words ring true. Um, no victory was promised to our ancestors. Uh but they kept fighting. Uh, and that in and of itself has to be taken as, as a tremendous victory. I want to thank you, brother, for joining us today, uh, uh, this, this uh, Black History Month. And in the midst of all your work, uh, really appreciate and value who you are uh, to the Republic and as a friend. Thank you. Thank you, Saladin. It was real great, really great to be here with you. And uh, for the sake of uh, a happy marriage. I just want to mention my wife's name is Stephanie Lawson Muhammad, and she leads an organization called uh, Erasing Essex Borders. Thank you for having me. Well, we know <laughs> Nona can invite invite her too. Uh, <laughs> she will have we'll have a nice, happy uh, Sicilian American Thanksgiving one of these days. Pleasure seeing you, brother. Love it. You be well. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. Please help support the work we do at This Moment in Democracy. Visit our podcast page at eagleton.rutgers.edu to learn more. We want to hear from our listeners. Email us at podcast at eagleton.rutgers.edu 
you to send in your comments about today's episode or suggest topics that you want to hear about. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us on this moment in democracy. 